do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. Good morning. As Pastor Zagree mentioned, my name is Hunter Boone. I'm the worship leader here at Coastal Chesapeake, uh, and I have the honor and the privilege of bringing the word this morning. And so to start, I thought I would share a story from my recent past. And so a few of you may remember a couple years ago, we took our students to a camp in Tennessee called Longview Ranch. And this is where I met my wife. Um, but that's not what this story is about. This story is actually about how we got there. So I was voluntold uh, to be one of the drivers to, to get us to East Tennessee. And what's really important to know about this story is that the car that I was driving did not have any students in it, okay? There was no one under the age of 18 in this car. And so you know by me telling you that, that this story is about to go downhill very quickly. And so... We get in the car, uh, it's a 12-passenger van that belongs to Coastal, and we're driving to East Tennessee. By the time we finally get there, it's dark, it's nighttime, and morale's low, right? Like, we've been in the car for a while, we're all ready to get out of the car, we're all ready to be a part of camp, and morale's kind of low, and so I figure I'll just play a little joke on the guys in my car, and I'll, I'll just, I'll scare them a little bit. So I did something that I had done before. Remember, it's dark, and we're in East Tennessee on this one-lane road. What do I do? I turn the lights off. I turn the headlights off, and it's something that I've done before. Here's how you do it. Turn the headlights off, you turn your hazard lights on, okay? So you can't see anything except every other second when your blinkers are flashing, right? And they're not your headlights, they're your blinkers. So all you can see is a couple feet out in front of your car. The people in my car were terrified, man. It was, they, it was hilarious. They were, they were terrified, screaming, turn, turn the lights back on. And so do you guys know how this story ends? We land in a ditch. I'm just kidding. That didn't happen. We didn't end up in a ditch. That's not true. But this story is true. We did turn the lights off, and everybody was terrified. And if I'm being totally honest, there were a couple points um, in this little drive that we took that I was just as scared as everybody else, because when the lights flashed, I realized that I was not on the road where I thought I was. I was almost in a ditch. And so why do I tell you this story? It's to advertise our summer camp this year is July 20th through 23rd, so sun. I'm kidding. I will not be driving. In fact, I might, I might not have a job after this story. However, the real reason I tell you guys this story is to say this. Today, we're going to be looking at John, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And John's going to tell us that there are people who are claiming to be walking in the light, but in reality, they're walking in darkness. And so I tell you this story to say this. The scary part about walking in darkness is that when the lights come on, you realize that you were not where you thought you were. I've been listening to a song as I've been preparing for this message. It's called, All I Have is Christ. Just listen. This is the opening line of the song. This is the first verse. It says, I once was lost in darkest night, and I thought that I knew the way. Sin promised joy and life, but it led me to the grave. Look, 
there's some of us in here right now that I know we're going through the motions. We're going through the motions of coming to church every once in a while. Maybe we send up a prayer on occasion, but our life is still characterized by unrepentant sin. There's that one sin, or maybe there's that several sins that we just can't escape. And what John is telling us this morning is not to walk in darkness, but to walk in the light. And so we're going to be covering a lot this morning. We're going to be covering a lot in this passage. There's a lot here, and I don't want to miss any of it. So it's going to feel like we're drinking out of a fire hydrant a little bit. But to kind of make sure we retain at least something, I've got two main points that I want us all to get, two main questions that I want to be able to answer by the end of today. They're at the bottom of your bullet, and this is the first one. What does it mean to walk in the light? That's question number one. I want to be able to answer that by the time we leave. What does it mean to, to walk in the light? The second question is this. I know we're supposed to walk in the light, but why, right? I think a lot of times we understand the Bible tells us to do something, we're supposed to do it, and that's true. But in certain situations, I think it's, it helps to understand the why behind what we're doing, okay? So the two questions for today, what does it mean to walk in the light? Second question, why should we choose to do that? So with that, let's go ahead and jump in. I'm going to read the passage for us. I'll pray, and I'll give us a little bit of context uh, just to give us some handles on our passage for today. But Uh, Starting in verse 5, this is the word of the Lord. You guys read with me. This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Heavenly Father, today, as we look at your word, um, I pray that you would remind us of the truth of your word. God, your word is truth. It is a firm foundation on which we can build our house and not be shaken, Lord. I pray that you would reveal to us the sins that are under the surface of our heart, Lord, and that we would be moved to to repentance, that we would confess our sin to you for the sake of forgiveness. So, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear from your word this morning. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to dig into your word. We love you, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. So if you guys were here last week, you probably got a lot of context on the book of 1 John. I don't want to spend a ton of time on the context, but I do want to just recap a few things so that we have good handles on what we're looking at today. So the book of 1 John is written by a disciple of Jesus named John, and he's writing a letter to a church in Ephesus. Um, And it appears from this text that there are false teachers within this church. Um, And they're spreading doctrines that are contrary to the gospel that John is preaching, the gospel of Christ. And so we find out why this is a big deal as the passage unfolds. You see, these false teachers were spreading doctrines that were causing people within the church to question whether or not they were really saved. They were questioning their salvation because of these false teachers. And so John tells us his purpose in writing this letter. It's to correct and confront, but also to provide assurance of faith for those in Christ. In 5.13, 1 John 5.13, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, 
that you have eternal life. We're memorizing that as a church this summer because that's John's thesis statement for the book of 1 John. His purpose is to confront and correct the false teachings because he wants people to know if they are in Christ, we look forward to an eternal life with him. And so how does he do that? How does he show us that that's the case? Well, that's what we're looking at today. So jumping into to verse 5, it says this, This is the message which we have heard from him and proclaim now to you. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, it's not a stretch of the imagination to understand that light is a metaphor for goodness and darkness is a metaphor for evil. So when we read this verse, what we're really reading is God is good and in him there is no evil, right? Now, the Greek translation, if you translate it straight out, it's a little bit awkward, but I think it's pretty clarifying. I, think it's, I actually think it's really good. Listen to what it says. I'm just going to translate it word for word. I'm not going to change any of the wording. It's just straight Greek translation. Ready? This is the Greek. God is light, and darkness in him is not nothing. Isn't that good? No, it's not good. That doesn't make any sense. Like, nobody, nobody understands that, right? It sounds like Yoda's reading this verse. So here's the reason that we don't understand that. Because in English, we don't like double negatives. Double negatives equal a positive. So if we read that verse in English, we say, darkness in him is not nothing, so there's some darkness in him that doesn't make any sense. But the Greek does not use double negatives that way. The double negative reinforces each other and it makes it a stronger, authoritative, emphatic way to reinstate that there is no darkness in God. So what we're reading in the Greek is not just that there's no darkness in God, it's that darkness is the farthest thing away from God physically imaginable. It's not just that he doesn't have, you know, a, a room of darkness in him. There's not even a shadow. God is good and in him there is no evil Whatsoever, And I think it's incredible that John addresses a problem in a church first by stating this verse. The first thing that he does when he addresses this problem is he says, hey, let's take a step back and embrace God's character. God is holy. We just sang three songs about the holiness of God, and that's what John does first to address this problem in the church. He says, let's take a step back. Let's embrace God's holiness. And so that's our first point for today. The first point is this. We walk in the light by first embracing God's holiness. And I think John gives us a good example of how we should, we should approach problems in our life. It's, it's by first embracing God's holiness. So when we're presented with any situation, right, we know we have a hard conversation coming up at work. The first thing that we do before we just jump into the conversation is take a step back and embrace God's holiness, right? If you're single, in the room, and you're thinking about starting a new relationship, I would encourage you to come together with that person you're th start thinking about starting the relationship with, and together embrace God's holiness. Let that be the foundation of your relationship. Or maybe you come home from work, and you're exhausted, and you know your kids are behind the door, and they're about to wear you out even more, right? Before you step through the door, take a step back, remind yourself of God's character, and embrace His holiness. Now, I can't tell you to do that without explaining what it means that God is holy. So to do that, I'm going to use an illustration that John Piper um, has used in the past. I'll do it as best just as I can. He says, one day he was having a conversation with his wife, Noel, and he says, Noel, why do you think we use gold to back the American dollar? Why is that what we use to define our value, right? And she goes, well, because it's rare. And he says, okay, yeah, it's rare, but fish are rare. People fish 
for fish that people haven't caught yet. So why do we use gold and not fish? And she says, well, fish die and they rot, and gold, there's some permanence to that, right? And so he establishes two things. One, God is holy, meaning that he is rare. He is the only of his kind. And two, he's permanent, meaning he, he was and he is and he forevermore will be. And he adds one more thing. He says, fish are rare, but there's also certain fish in the bottom of the ocean that we don't even know exist, right? Those are the rarest of the fish. And he says, God's not like that. Why? Because God is accessible. And that's the third piece of God's holiness. And so this is his definition. This is John Piper's definition of God's holiness. He says, God's holiness is his infinite value as the absolutely unique, morally perfect, permanent person that he is and who by grace has made himself accessible. But there's a problem with this, right? We know that God is light and in him there's not even a shadow of darkness. But we, as sinful human beings, we were born into iniquity. David says in the Psalms that from his mother's womb, he was born into sin. We are born into darkness as human beings. So how can John Piper say that God is accessible? If we're in darkness and God is light, how can we access God? The answer is through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. His word says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God is only accessible because of the sacrificial act of Jesus Christ, his son. And so when John says God is light, in essence what he's saying is not only is God good, but he's also perfect. He is the most perfect being that has ever existed. And if sinners like us want fellowship with him, our only hope is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so that's, this, that's the foundation. That's the first thing that he says in this passage. That's how he starts. Now, as we move on, we're going to see a pattern in the rest of the verses, verses 6 through 10. We're going to see it go like this. Problem in verse 6, solution in verse 7. Problem in verse 8, solution in verse 9, and so on. And that'll come into play a little bit later. But starting in verse 6, we see the first problem that he addresses. He says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. And as we mentioned, darkness is a reference to evil or sin. And so another way to word this would be to say, we cannot have fellowship with God if we're living a lifestyle characterized by unrepentant sin. That's what John's telling us in this verse. My wife grew up in Mississippi, and we dated long distance, and she was in Mississippi for a while, and she worked as a nurse, and I don't, if you've ever been there, or maybe you lived there, it is a different culture. If you've ever been to somewhere in the Bible Belt like that, it's not a question of where you go to church. I'm sorry, it's not a question of if you go to church. It's a question of where you go to church, right? Which, in some ways, that's great. Everybody has a church home, but the problem with that is that there's so many people within these churches who don't have an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ, who have no spiritual fruit showing up in their life, and they're living in blatant, unrepentant sin. And so John tells us this morning, he's saying very clearly, if you're walking in darkness, if you're living in sin, it is impossible for you to have fellowship with God. And so that's the problem that he states in verse 6. And he moves on to verse 7. He says, but, that's how we know we've gone from the problem to the solution. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. This is not a rocket science solution to that problem. 
Problem? Walking in darkness. Solution? Walk in the light. It's not hard. It's, he makes it very clear. It's short and sweet. And so because of the concise nature of this couple of verses, this is how I would conclude this little passage right here. I would say, if I was writing this text, if you're walking in darkness, you need to walk in the light. If you walk in the light, you have fellowship with God, period. Move on to the next verse. But that's not what he says. First, why would I say, why would I stop with fellowship with God? With God? Because verse 6 is talking about fellowship with God. People who claim to have fellowship with God but walk in the darkness. Verse 7, walk in the light as who is in the light? As God is in the light, right? So again, fellowship with God. But he doesn't say fellowship with God. He doesn't stop there. What does he say? He says, John says that we will have fellowship with one another. What does that mean? Where did that come from? How, where, where did he get one another from? The answer is from verse 3. And if you look back in your Bible to verse 3, we'll find out that, God, that John is referencing by fellowship with one another. He is referencing that we'll have fellowship not only with God, but also other believers. Verse 3 says this, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John uses the first person plural, we, are, and us, four times in this passage, indicating that he is one of many, right? He's one person in a larger group. And it tells us at the end of verse 3 here, it says, our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son. So this group that John is a part of has fellowship with God. And then in the beginning of verse 3, it tells us how, he, how they achieved that fellowship. That which we have seen and heard. And so what we're seeing from verse 3 is that John is a part of a group who has heard the message of the gospel and received it by faith. And do you know another word that we use to define the group of people who have heard the message of the gospel and received it by faith? The church. It's the body of Christ. And so from, we see from verse 3 that if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship not only with God, but also with the church, with other believers, with other Christians, but fellowship, now we're on to fellowship. Fellowship is more than just being grouped in the same category of person, okay? One of the commentaries I was reading defines fellowship this week. It says, fellowship is union with other believers as a result of a common enjoyment of some spiritual privilege. What is John, what spiritual privilege is John talking about in this passage? I think he's talking about justification. And where did I get that? Verse 7. It says this, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sin. Now, as we mentioned earlier, God is holy and every human being is unholy. God is light and every human being is born into darkness. And left to ourselves, we would spend our entire life living in darkness, choosing sin. Our, human, our sinful human nature literally makes us enemies with God. But upon the moment that we're saved, the doctrine of justification says we are freed from our sinful status before God and the price of our sin has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so not only is it justification, I also see the doctrine of adoption in here. I think those two things go hand in hand. So I'm going to read from Galatians 4 to define the doctrine of adoption. It says this, Galatians 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So let's bring it full circle here. What is John's purpose in clarifying that our fellowship is one another? Why does he go all the way to say our fellowship is not only with God, but also with one another? I think that his point is to tell us that we can know we're walking in the light when we share in the enjoyment of being a child of God. Pastor Colin used this example last week at the Yorktown campus, and he's here today, so thanks for the reference. I'm going to steal every word. Um, He said, the doctrine of justification says that we are sinners and we're, in a, we're, we're slaves to our sin. We're in a jail cell of our sin. And Jesus enters the scene and he opens our prison door. He sets us free. And if he stops there, right? Like if that's all he did, that would be an unfathomable act of mercy and grace, but he doesn't stop there. He frees us from our jail cell and he invites us to his table and gives us a seat reserved for his son. Jesus sets us free and God gives us a seat at his table. And when we walk in the light as a part of the body of Christ, we look around that table at our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been saved by grace through faith and we say with one voice, How great is our God that he would save a wretch like me, that he would save a sinner like me. And so our second point today is this. We walk in the light as a part of the body of Christ. We do not do it alone, but we walk in the light as a part of the body of Christ. Now, moving on to verse 8, we establish another problem. And I actually think it's really interesting how John approaches this problem in verse 8. Let's pay attention here. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? John is is pre-confronting a response that he knows he's going to get from these false teachers, from these people who are walking in darkness. He's pre-confronting. He knows what they're going to say. How do I know that? Well, how would you respond if someone came up to you and accused you of something. My wife didn't believe that I was going to use this example, but here it goes. You ready? My wife, with all the love in her heart, on more occasions than I care to admit, has asked me this question. Hunter, did you leave your wet towel on the bathroom floor? Do you know what my sinful human nature responds with every time? Wasn't me. We're the only ones in the house. Like, it's, there's nobody else to do that. But every time I want to say, no, it wasn't me. It must have been the dog, right? Like, it's not, it's just a natural human response. And John knows that that's the way that these false teachers are going to respond. He's talking about walking in darkness. He's talking about how we have this sin, and these false teachers are responding, and they're saying, no, we don't. We don't need our sins to be cleansed because we don't have any sin. And ironically, John says, Well, that's a lie, and so there's a sin, right? He's saying you're lying to yourself. But practically speaking for us today, I don't think that most of us would say, yeah, I'm without sin altogether. But did you know that your actions are saying something for you, whether you're verbalizing it or not? 
If you're living a life of unrepentant sin, I, the way I see it, your life can be saying one of two things. Your actions can be saying one of two things. The first thing that your life can be saying if you're living in unrepentant sin is this. I disagree that what I'm doing is sinful. I'll give you some examples to define what I mean. Uh, I think we've all been here, right? I know that I'm not supposed to respond in anger, but did you see the way that dude cut me off on 64 on the way over here, right? Like, I know I'm not supposed to be an angry person, but he deserves to see one of my five fingers, right? Like, he, he deserves that. And if not that, he at least deserves a clarifying glance. Like, I'm going to fly by him and give him, like, you know what I mean? Like, look through the window. How about this one? I know the word says that I am supposed to have no gods before the one true God. And I don't. I don't have any idols in my life. But it's true, I haven't spent a whole lot of time in the Word recently because work's been really busy. But that doesn't mean I have an idol, right? I'm not making an idol out of my work. It's just work's busy right now, and I'll, I'll get back around to the whole God thing after work calms down a little bit. Speaking to the young men in the room, I know that the Bible says I'm not even supposed to look at a woman or I commit adultery. But have you seen what some of these women are wearing in the gym these days? Like, what am I supposed to do? Walk around with a blindfold? Surely he doesn't mean I can't even look. I'm not committing adultery. I'm just looking, right? If your lives are saying any of these things, I want you to hear something. When you reject the truth behind the commandments of God, you also reject the truth of his mercy and grace. What do I mean? I mean, if you say that you're without sin, you say that you're without need for a savior. And John is telling us this morning that this is a lie. We cannot give in to that lie. And so that's the first thing that your life can be saying if you're living in sin, is that I disagree that my actions are sinful. The second thing that I think your life can be saying is this. I know that some of the things I'm doing are sinful, but all in all, I'm doing pretty good, right? That is a super tempting trap to fall into. And if you do fall into it, if you do fall into the trap of believing that you're all in all a pretty good person, you open the door to pride and arrogance and being holier than thou, even a sense of reliance, self-reliance from God. And I want to read this passage from a Bible study written by Nancy Guthrie. Um, she's, the Bible study is on the prophets, and she's speaking to the sins of the Israelites, saying that we struggle with the same one. So what I want to do here, I'm going to read this. She gives us a list in here. Just take a minute and listen to this list and see if you find yourself anywhere on this list. Here it goes. She says, we struggle with the same sins of the Israelites. Here's the list. Idolatry. Disregard for God's law. Empty religiosity. Being in love with the world. Hard-heartedness. Greed. Lack of concern for the poor. And presumption as members of the covenant community. She says, if you read this and you didn't see your own sin in it, it doesn't mean that this isn't for you. It might actually mean that this is even more important for you. And then she says this, watch this part. We as a culture are so very practiced in denying our sinfulness. We rationalize, minimize, and relabel our sins so that they don't even come up on our radar. Maybe you and I need to hear repeatedly about the sins that break the heart of God so that conviction will penetrate our well-rehearsed denials. 
As a culture, I think we have gotten so good at minimizing, rationalizing, and denying our sin. And if we're doing these things, if we're in essence saying that we have no sin, John tells us very clearly this is a blatant and rebellious lie. And so what do we do with that, right? He tells us in verse 9, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hey, if you haven't heard anything else today, hear this. Ready? The key to walking in the light is not sinlessness. I'll say that again. The key to walking in the light is not sinlessness. How do I know that? The false teachers believed this. They said, yeah, John, Everybody knows we're supposed to be doing good and not doing evil. We're, we're, on, we're in agreement, man. We're saying the same things. But John says, no, we're not saying the same things. You believe that you can live your life without sinning. You believe that you can walk in the light by living sinlessly. And John tells us that this is not the case. How do I know? Verse 7, Jesus cleanses the sin of the people walking in the light. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're lying. And verse 9, again, it's confession. We'll see later in verse 10. We cannot say that we have no sin. So if the key to walking in the light is not living sinlessly, what is it? The way I see it from this verse and this text, it's confession, right? If we confess our sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. What does confession look like? This is another quote from the commentary I read this week. To confess sins is not merely to admit that we're sinners, but to lay them before God and seek forgiveness. And with that in mind, I see three things that have to happen for us to be able to confess our sin. I'll give you the list and then we'll dig into it a little bit. Point number three today, walk in the light by acknowledging your sin, confessing it to Jesus, and by turning away from your sin. Another word to say that is repenting. So again, acknowledge your sin, confess it to Jesus, and repent from your sin or turn away from your sin. So if we don't acknowledge our sin, if we don't first say that we have sin that needs cleansing, we say we have no need for a Savior. And this was the problem with the false teachers in this church that John is writing to. And so first thing we have to do, we've got to stop minimizing, we've got to stop rationalizing, we've got to stop denying our sin. We have to acknowledge our sin, and once we've acknowledged it, that will lead us to confession. It will lead us to confess our sin to Jesus. Now, it's important to note here, this confession is not just an apology, because an apology leads us to confession to sin again. This is Romans 6.1, right? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Paul says, of course not. We don't confess so we can seek permission to sin again. We confess so that we can seek forgiveness from Christ. Now, once we've done those two things, once we've acknowledged our sin for what it is, an act of rebellion against God, once we've confessed our sin for the sake of forgiveness, the natural repercussion of these things is repentance, right? You're not going to want to do these things again if you've acknowledged your sin and confessed it. And so number three is repentance. So what I think John is encouraging us to do today is to walk in the light by acknowledging our sin, confessing it to Jesus, and then turning away from our sin or repenting. And so I said there would be two questions that we need to answer today, right? The first question is this. What does it mean to walk in the light? First, what it is not. 
It is not sinless living. Again, verse 7 says that Jesus cleanses the sin of those walking in the light. Verse 8 and 10 say that we're lying if we say we have no sin. And so John is bending over backwards to tell us that the key to walking in the light is not sinlessness. And I'm going to stop here for a second and just tell you guys, there's joy in that message. There is joy in knowing that walking in the light is not sinlessness. I don't know about you guys, but for my personal walk with Christ, the biggest hurdle that I've had to get over is when I sin, I doubt my salvation, right? Jesus, are you even at work in my life? Why am I going back to the same sin over and over? Why am I still doing these things? Why am I still falling short of the glory of God? Is your Holy Spirit not at work in me, right? John tells us that the joy in knowing the message of the gospel, the joy in knowing that walking in the light is not sinlessness, is to say that nothing I have done is too dark for the blood of Christ to redeem. I have not sinned too many times for Jesus to redeem me, for the blood of Jesus to wash me white as snow. And so we know from this text that walking in the light is not sinless living. Then what is it? I think it's point one, two, and three from today. It's embracing God's holiness. And then as a part of the body of Christ, as a part of the church, we acknowledge, confess, and repent from our sins. That's what I think walking in the light is as defined by this text. Now, I've got two minutes and 30 seconds left before that thing starts flashing red at me and you guys start getting hungry. But if you notice, we haven't gotten to verse 10 yet and we still have one question to answer and so the last question is this, why should I choose to walk in the light? We'll read verse 10 and we'll find our answer. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. A lot of people say that this is a restatement of verse 8 for emphasis. And I agree. I think that that's true. Um, he's restating a similar message to verse 8 so that we really drive home the point that we cannot say that we're without sin. However, remember I mentioned there was a pattern to the way, this is, the way this passage is unraveling. I want us to follow the lie through that pattern, okay? Watch this, verse six, what's the lie? People are claiming to, walk, claiming to have fellowship with God while walking in darkness. And so where's the lie? The lie is in that they have fellowship with God. They're claiming to other people around them that they have fellowship with God when actuality, in actuality they're walking in darkness. And so I see this as an outward action-based lie, right? Kind of a surface level outward lie. Move into verse 8. Where's the lie? If you say you're without sin, you lie to yourself. And so now we've gone from outward action-based to inward and heart level lie. Now we're on verse 10, and it says, if we still say we're without sin, we make God a liar. And to me, I see this as outward surface level, inward heart level. The third is the most central you can get. We're talking about a person's eternity. God, John is saying that if you've heard all these things up into verse 10, and you're still saying that you're without sin, God is just, and you're making God a liar. Here's the deal. We've rehearsed uh, quite a few times this morning that God is light. But John 8, 12 says that there's another light. Jesus refers to himself 
as the light of the world. Jesus, who is God, wrapped himself in flesh, and he is God manifest to man. Revelation 22 says that the light of the world is coming back. Listen to what it says about when that time comes. Revelation 22. Night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, darkness will be no more. Jesus returning, it, Jesus is returning to abolish darkness, meaning that there will be no place in his new heaven and his new earth anywhere for darkness. And so why should we walk in the light? The answer is because the light is coming back. Jesus is coming back to establish his reign here on this earth. And when that time comes, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But when that time comes, if we have failed to acknowledge our sin and we've failed to confess it to Jesus for the sake of forgiveness, we know from verse 9 that God is just, meaning that he cannot go back on his word. And his word says, if we are in darkness, there is no place for us in his kingdom. And so for those of us walking in darkness this morning, that is a bleak message. And there is not a lot of hope in that message. But for those of us in the light, for those of us in the light, there is no greater message than the fact that the light of the world will return. For those of us in the light, we look forward to a time when we'll see Jesus face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Not only will we see him face to face, we will be like him in the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. This is explaining what that kingdom will look like. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be, the, will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. There is no more death. There is no more mourning. There is no more weeping. There is no more pain. There is no more darkness. I started with lyrics from a song, and in true worship leader fashion, I'm going to end with some more lyrics from another song. This song is called Behold. Listen, listen to what we look forward to as those of us in the light. The empty filled, the wounded healed, the broken back together. The poor are blessed, the weary rest, we dance forever. The blinded see, the chained are free, the doubtful now believer, the outcast known, the orphan home, you are my redeemer. Behold, behold, behold what Christ can do. Behold, 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 he's making all things new. If you're here today and you've yet to put your faith in Christ, if you're walking in the darkness and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the message I want to communicate to you is this. There is hope for an eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, come find me. Come find another staff member. We want to help you take steps to start walking in the light, to accept Christ as your Savior. And for the believer here this morning, Maybe you're already walking in the light, but you're struggling with a sin that's continually pulling you back into the darkness. It's continually trying to reel you back into the darkness. This morning, I want you to know that God is calling you to bring that sin into the light. 
Depending on what you're struggling with, this may, mean you need, this may mean that you need to find a trusted brother or sister in Christ to help keep you accountable, to help you truly repent from your sin, to help you acknowledge, confess, and repent from your sin. And if you don't have that person, again, come find me. Come find a staff member. We want to help you walk in the light. And the reason we want to help you walk in the light is because of the true joy and the real hope that comes from walking in the light as God is in the light. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that there is no sin too dark. There is no sin that we've engaged in too many times for the blood of Christ to redeem us. God, this morning I know that there are sins weighing heavy on the hearts of certain people in this room. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage and the confidence to approach your throne room, acknowledge our sin, confess it to Christ who's faithful and just to forgive. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a heart of repentance, that we would seek to be like you, that we would be conformed into the image of your son. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you're holy. Thank you for Christ who is holy. Thank you for Christ who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, a life that we could not live. And then he died a perfect death, taking the penalty for our sins upon himself. Forgive us for the way that we fall short. Help us to confess our sins to you for the sake of forgiveness. Help us to repent and be more like you, God. We love you, and we pray all of these things in your name. Amen.